Welcome to Writers Talking TV, brought to you by the Writers Guild of Canada. I'm Cal Coons, and I'm a screenwriter and showrunner who has worked on Canadian TV shows, including Murdoch Mysteries and The Listener. On this podcast, you'll hear me in conversation with Michael Amo, the creator and showrunner of the six-part CBC series Pure. CBC describes Pure as the story of a newly elected Mennonite pastor who is determined to rid his community of drug traffickers. Pure has also been called CBC Does Breaking Bad with Mennonites. But this story is true, based on actual accounts of Mennonites smuggling drugs from Mexico into Canada. Here's my conversation with Michael Amo about Pure. Michael graduated from Ryerson University with a degree in motion picture studies and created The Listener, which ran for five seasons on CTV and Fox International. He has been nominated for two Gemini Awards for his work inspired by headlines, tagged the Jonathan Wambach story, and Blessed Stranger, After Flight 111. And he's partners with David McLeod in Two East Productions and lives in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, with his family. So... Welcome, Michael. All true. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Michael, uh, t- tell us a, a little bit about, um, before we get on to Pure itself, uh, about you and what your um, career path was, how you and why you chose to go into this. Live in Nova Scotia or do this job. <laughs> this li- li- lucrative <laughs> lifestyle that you've this, chosen this for yourself. This alleged career, that's right, yeah. 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 What, what, what's, what's the origins? How, how did you, you know, what attracted you? How did you fall into the business? I, I grew up in Collingwood here in Ontario. I'm from here, and I uh, went to school here, and uh, I didn't have any idea about the business before I uh, got into it. I, I was 18 when I went to film school, and my dad, who was a banker, my mom, who was a nurse, I remember sitting on the front step of our house in Collingwood, and they said, we have no idea what to tell you. Good luck. Goodbye. You know? <laughs> yeah, and it started there. So it was just something I wanted to do, and having no idea what the consequences of that decision would be. And uh, <laughs> four years of film school and about 15 or 20 years of odd jobs later, you know, I actually started to make a living. So. How did how did you come to the writing process itself? Was that an adjunct to making films, or was it uh, something that you'd always been attracted to? I was always uh, I wrote plays in high school, and I I just always did writing, and I I became useful to people that way. I think so. I felt that that was the quickest way to become a director, <laughs> actually. So that's what I, I that was my initial uh, objective, and then I became useful as a writer, and then I thought, well, maybe I would control my destiny more if I was actually a producer rather than the director. So I took the writer-producer route, which is what I do now. Right. And and then um, over the years, uh, did you go the typical kind of writer-on-staff route? Or how, no. did, you, how did you actually... No, I'm, I was a weirdo because I, I wrote uh, tons of spec screenplays. And mm-hmm. of course, there is no market for such a thing in Canada. But what that did was that got me jobs writing movies of the week, like disasters of the week. And so so I was comfortable in that format. And then uh, the listener was just sort of, I had a feature screenplay, and I just took the first act of that, and I turned that into a, into a pilot. And so it was a complete lateral move from being kind of a hermit writing long-form um, MOWs to, be, to series. So it was a real education, you know, going straight from, you know, being a writer to being... Uh, you know, an executive producer on a, a show. So it was a good education. It was a bumpy ride, but it was a good education. Right, and and then and then afterwards, you've 
you chose to um, sort of not not join the kind of typical writer's room kind of thing. And, I wasn't and invited. It was, <laughs> you know, I just wasn't, you know, I, I, I have agents in Toronto and L.A., and I'm seen as a creator, and, uh, and I think uh, people whose staff on shows are different than I am. So uh, I, I've tried, but I've never been invited. So <laughs> I'm, stuck, I'm stuck creating my own jobs, basically, which is fine because I can do it. But it would have been interesting to been, have been, you know, whatever, you know, a mid-level writer in a room. I just never had the opportunity. Well, I think it's an interesting um, uh, lesson for people that, you know, the, sometimes, the, you know, your path to uh, working in the industry isn't necessarily... No. ...isn't tried and true. No, I don't think anybody, you know, their trajectory is a straight line. I can't imagine. You know, I hear about these stories of people, you know, working their way up, but I think quite often we have to invent our own paths and, you know, and invent our own opportunities. Certainly that was true for me. Well, that, that's great stuff. We'll, I think we should especially return to that probably after the screening and, and um, when you guys are talking about it, it's, you know, it's uh, for you who are uh, aspiring screenwriters or, you know, or frustrated screenwriters, uh, you know, ways to, to move forward. Um, but let's talk about Pure. Yeah. Um, so tell me how you got involved with this story and, and what its origins were. Yeah, I was actually working on The Listener. And uh, my agent at the time knew that my grandparents were Mennonites uh, from Russia and knew that I was interested in that world and I was always trying to find a, a vehicle to explore that world, kind of a Trojan horse. Uh, my grandfather had written at the end of his life a memoir of his life from his earliest memory through the revolution, through his, and that was through his immigration to Canada. And I knew I couldn't tell that story. That was this, you know, impossible practically to tell. But then... I came across uh, an article in a magazine about the Mennonite mob, which had been published like almost five or six years before. And you actually, I think, had an interest in the same story. We will. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I wasn't going to bring that up, but I personally love this story, and I'm so glad that somebody made it. Them, so. I think a bunch of people, you know, it was just timing. And I, I, and I had some money at the time, and I optioned that article, and I re-optioned it for like seven or eight years. You know, every year, and I would, you know, but it was it grew out of my interest in in Mennonite culture, a culture that had sort of stopped with my mother when my parents left the farm and and just decided to join the world. But it was a like one half of my kind of family tree that was completely cut off and forgotten. So that it was a way to explore that. So so when uh, so did you. Um uh, uh, did you start like down a development path, or did you uh, self-initiate the project? How did how did you approach it then? I I, I I pitched it without optioning the article, and that didn't go anywhere. Then I optioned the article, and that didn't go anywhere. And then I wrote a huge pitch, and that didn't go anywhere. And then I spec the entire screenplay, and that didn't go anywhere. And then I wrote an American version, and that didn't go anywhere. But by this time, there had been such a turnover with the executives. I don't know if they actually keep development logs up here or not, but, you know. But I would go back and pitch the same network, the same story again, and uh, and uh, and then what happened was True Detective and Fargo happened, and that demonstrated uh, an appetite for these sort of limited kind of run true crime uh, type of shows. So once the Americans had demonstrated that there was an appetite for it, the Canadians said, "Hmm, maybe we should try it too." And they're and they're very um, they're stories with a specificity of place, and yeah. and this is very much 
of of a, of a, of, a, of a specific community, a specific place. Yeah, usually, I mean, we've been through the mill, and often, I mean, the thing that drives me nuts about working in Canada is you always have to keep it so generic. It has to not kind of be any place so that it will appeal to everyone. That's the ostensible kind of logic of it all. The international is, sales Which is logic. utter bullshit, you know, as we know. It's complete, it's painful, but, you know, uh, it's... Um, with this story, it was so specific, and it was so specific to my history that, uh, you know, I, I wanted to keep it that way. So the Mennonite mob aspect is real, and it's 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 a documentary fact. You don't have to dig too deep to find stories about it. But what what I did was I created a fictional uh, community so that I didn't single out one particular community and say these people are drug dealers or those people are drug dealers. I just decided to create a fictional community, which my Mennonite, one of my Mennonite consultants gave a name for it, and that sort of that was a decision to keep the crime specific, but keep the uh, the community, you know, a fiction, a generic to. Well, it's not generic because we took attributes of both old colony and old order Mennonites, and we put them together, which angers some people. I understand that, but we felt it was the right thing to do, ethically, is to kind of create a, a fictional community. Right, so so Michael, then you know, let's back up a little bit into the into the. You've got this idea that appeals to you personally, um, uh, and and then how did you actually approach the story? Like, how did you actually go about trying to? I had a bunch of really shitty ideas <laughs> <laughs> that I I would work on, and then they would just nauseate me, and I throw them away. And initially, I wanted to do it from the outside in, and I had all these terrible ideas about how that might happen. I thought, well, what if I told it from the inside out? What if I imagined that if I was sort of, it was a cowboys and Indian story, and I imagined that the Mennonites were the cowboys and the rest of us were the savages, and uh, and this is all about sort of trying to build a wall around your community and drive out all of the impurities, all of the, uh, you know, the, the nastiness of the outsider. And then once I had that take on it, it, it sort of, it seemed more uh, like a story worth telling to me. Did, did, um um, did you feel that that the um, that the you know it's obviously a, a, a big story about faith about religion and 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 um, did did that you know was that something that you had to wrestle with about about in terms of would a broad, would a broadcaster would an audience would uh, you know how much would they accept of that and yet it's core to the to the uh, to that community. Yeah, no, it's true. Uh, you know, issues of faith and spirituality aren't generally, you know, something you find on TV, you know. Uh, but I think that people, you know, universally speaking, everybody has a spiritual impulse. And I felt if we dealt with that honestly, whether it was the cop character looking for some meaning and redemption in his life or the pastor trying to kind of get closer to God and figure out what God wants from him, I think that would, I thought that would resonate for an audience, because when I was younger, I was a very devout Christian, and I can remember that certainty, and I can also remember now, from the other side, being not so devout anymore, you know, And, and I, but I still, I think, within every audience member, there is that impulse, so I felt if I, you know, made that a central part of it, it you know, people would, would would be interested. Well, I'm quite fascinated with the, with the, the, the kind of way you... Um, set up the story like 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 and and what those if you can travel back to that time because um you know the sen- that first episode becomes very um you know there's a lot to set up not just uh, the story stuff but 
helping us as you know uh, an outsider actually understand how that um, how that world works. And so I'd love to know how you uh, navigated yourself through that minefield of of actually how am I going to tell this story? Well, I, I did a lot of reading and I did a lot of research and I talked to the fellow whose option or article I optioned and I just tried to immerse myself as much as I could in the world and I spoke to, you know, old colony Mennonites and I remembered my grandparents and used their relationship as kind of a, the basis for the, the husband and wife relationship in the show and then I just tried to be as honest as possible if I was in the shoes of this pastor and these were my impossible choices. What would I do? And it's you know, our it always starts with a what if, whatever it's a Mennonite story or any story. So it was I applied the same kind of um, you know uh, logic to this story as any other story. Tell me about that research pro, uh, process a little bit more. I mean, you know, um, I've found over the years that you know we tend to you know. Uh, well, I found it on Wikipedia, so uh, you know my, my, this must be true. <laughs> but it does, that sh your show doesn't feel like that. It feels yeah. credible. Yeah. It feels credible on very deep levels. And and I'd like to li know a little bit more about you know how you approach that. Well, I had the benefit of a ten-year runway, you know, between the conception of the idea to actual production to kind of you know continually read more and watch more and talk to people and uh so i think w i had the benefit of kind of marinating in 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 the research that was available to me at the time so it didn't feel rushed to me you know and then the actors themselves did their own research i think maybe gord rand is here tonight maybe not i don't know there he is there he is yeah. sneaking. and gord is uh, plays uh, abel in the show so it's great to have him here um so yeah, I, I had the benefit of a long runway, yeah, development runway, so I could take my time with the script and with the research, and uh, you know, but you know, there's only so much research you can do before it becomes. I'll tell you a story. I went to one old colony Mennonite. I was looking for a translation to do the Low German, you know, because it's not a language I speak, and I visited him on his in his house, you know, and this was. So it took a, it was a securitist route to actually get into the community to talk to him. It's not like they've got a community liaison officer who's just waiting for, you know, writers to show up and ask questions. Midnight Film Commission. <laughs> no, the, it, it doesn't exist. They're, they're essentially a closed community, and they, and they don't really want a lot of contact. But I found a way to talk to this gentleman, and I said, well, I have some scripts here, and I need some translation, but I have to warn you that there are some bad words in it. Um... And there uh, was long silences because it was like he was talking to a Martian, and I appreciated his dis you know his discomfort. I respected it, and he finally said, "If there's anything in the script that leads people away from God, I won't do it." <laughs> there's all kinds of stuff that leads people away from God in the script, right? And so, but I, I thanked him and I left, and then then we never heard from him again. You know, so we checked in later. He hadn't even read the script yet. He was busy being a farmer, right? Being a Mennonite farmer. So we ultimately, uh, you know, found two people who'd spent time in the community. One had grown up Mennonite outside, you know, in a more liberal family, and another woman had grown up in an old colony uh, family in Paraguay. So we did have those people to talk to to vet things with as well, but. You know, a story is a story. Characters are characters. I don't care if they're Mennonites or they're jihadists or they're, 
you know, Bay Street lawyers, we're all humans, and we all sort of react in a human way to situations. So, right. Yeah. Uh, d so as you began to flesh this out, um, um, how did you how did you approach balancing fact with fiction, and, and especially um, because you've got a kind of um, uh, you know it's a, a sensitive community. Like I mean, it, it's, it's a community that doesn't typically engage and could be easily, I think, you know, um, misrepresented. Misrepresented, and I think that the the show actually does a very good job of or tries. You know, I think. Um, I'd be curious. Uh, so, how did you how did you sort of say, I can dramatize this to this point, but but I have to, but I, you know, I have to be respectful of how these people would do. What did you have? Did you develop um, some sort of litmus test or something for that? How did you do that, or was it just what what felt? Well, right? I, I had uh, our Mennonite consultants read every page, and I we. We talked. We talked about ritual, and we talked about would like I questions like would they shake hands with Auslanders when they talk to, you know, just tiny stuff like that, you know. And but the interesting thing is, the more research I did, the more I realized that every single community, and they're right across Canada, and they're right across the U.S. and New Mexico, they, they're all a little bit different, you know, and they all have their own rules, and they all have the way of doing things, and uh, there wasn't one kind of standard Mennonite behavior that we could say, well, this is what it is, because there it's not a homogenous community at all. So I felt that, you know, we would be respectful, but also I didn't, it was impossible to, to, to standardize behavior because that doesn't exist. And did you, and did you find then, then the converse I would think was like, I don't believe this. This can't be happening in this community because because you kind of read the story and the, the material kind well, of well no I, and I've had uh, you know Mennonite scholars say to me a Mennonite pastor would never take their troubles to the police and I, my response is well Mennonites would never smuggle drugs so I mean <laughs> you know in Red Riding Hood would never have gone into the woods knowing that a wolf was there right so we again it's sort of a what if situation I, I just think that once we've established the documentary reality of drug smuggling I think that a lot of things are conceivable. Right, so so the show itself, how did you approach it in terms of, um, did you think of it as a, you know, develop a big A plot, uh, a, a, a storyline through it, and then uh, develop a bunch of B and C storylines, or did you see it that way? How did you see it actually laying out, or did that change, actually, from, you know, your early days when you started it to, uh, you know... No, it's exactly, that's exactly what we did. We had, I, I wanted to have the pastor have this spiritual journey. He thinks he's going towards God, but every time he makes a choice that he thinks is in the best interest of his community, which he's, you know, charged to serve by God, every time he takes a step forward, it seems to take him further away from God. And that was always my A story. And that and I knew that in order realistically for him to achieve his goal, he would have to cut off the mob at the root, which is in Mexico. So I knew that much. I knew that we had to get from Canada to Mexico. <laughs> and initially it was it was eight episodes and then we were told we had six and then so the journey became even faster to Mexico. But once I knew that I had that kind of trajectory for the main character, once I decided who, you know, the characters were helping him, like 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 Abel over there, then they needed stories as well. So that's how it happened. And did did you have a fairly um uh structured sort of approach to it or did you 
feel it you know like 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 you know is the, did you have a board somewhere with you know all the beats and and and, and i don't that. know i've never watched myself maybe i should set up a camera and see what my process <laughs> is very curious it yeah. would be really dull i think <laughs> I, th- I have a big blank wall and I have index cards and then I have the, the horror of the blank space, the terror of the blank space and I just start putting up index cards. And so because there were six of them I could bounce back and forth. I'd had the pilot so I sort of knew, you sort of have, you've engineered the trajectories for these people based on the pilot so you kind of know where it's going to go. But then, yeah, I just would put index cards on a wall and fill it all in. Right. Uh, one of the things I thought was interesting about watching the show was theme. You know, and I, I don't know. I just wanted to ask you what you thought about it, because for some people, theme is you know it's almost a bad word. That you know, like if you see theme, you have overwritten theme. That it should be what you take away from it. But I, I, I thought it'd be interesting to see if that was something conscious in your writing, or is that just is just that just what came from it? The plot, obviously, as you talk about on the A story, is you know this this crisis of faith that this man is facing and. Well, I think when theme is a question rather than a statement, because if it's a self-fulfilling statement, you might as well just write it on an index card and film that. But if it's a question that leads to an exploration and there isn't any kind of one answer, I think that's useful as a kind of a, a guiding light. And, and, and certainly with this, with this particular show, it was like, how much you know, evil does a good man have to do to you know, rid his community of evil? I don't know if there's an answer to that, but it was a worthwhile question. And that, wasn't so much a theme as just sort of like that's that's what we're going to try and find out. So this is, so going back to your idea that, that that you know this is kind of after True Detective after Fargo and these uh, you know and we're certainly seeing these uh, Nordic noir kind of shows coming across uh, the um, for a lot of people myself included you know I think you know I certainly look at it and go like that's kind of a beautiful little thing there where you can write a six episode thing and, and control it how did how did um how'd that go was that was that fun was it everything you thought it would be it was amazing yeah yeah i've been on both sides of it i've done episodic stuff too so it was a huge pleasure to do it that being said it was hugely speculative too because i wrote the pilot on spec we've developed four scripts with shaw and they kicked us to the curb, and then you know we had to take it elsewhere. So it wasn't a straight line, and for a long time it was like the dead parrot in the Monty Python sketch. It was well and truly dead, and I would drag it from place to place and try to bring it back to life again. So as fun as it was to write all six, as a producer, as like one half owner of the company, I had to assume the responsibility of keeping it alive. So as a writer, great fun. As a producer, not as much. Um and and um. I, I, you know, I see you wrote everything yourself. You have two story consultants uh, that worked on a show. How how did you how did you guys work together? Tassie Cameron, she uh, was sort of a dramaturge for wasn't sort of she was a dramaturge for the first four episodes, and she would just we would just talk through it, you know, as dramaturges and writers do. And then as the reality of uh, production loomed, and we realized we didn't have all the money that we wanted <laughs> or the time that we wanted which is the same thing. Um, I brought in Andrew Reggett to do a pass on each script because I was busy doing other stuff as a producer. So he would, he, tra- he wrestled, he just cut some pages out and helped me focus some characters and then I went back and rewrote it again. But uh, it's not like the standard process, I guess, but it was, you know, it was great because it, it wasn't a committee driven at all. It was, for better or for worse, my creative imprint is on the show and Andrew's certainly 
and, and the director, Ken Girardi, who did all six as well, which is another important sort of half of this whole process, is he directed all six episodes. So he was also giving me notes at the same time. But that being said, compared to other shows, it was a very intimate kind of creative uh, process. Yeah, I was going to ask you a little bit about how the collaborative proce process itself, because, of course, your partner, uh, David, uh, produced it, and then you, uh, David McLeod, and... Um, and Ken was uh, there and uh, in the directing thing. Um, um, I assume did, you know you'd, you'd have the scripts and then there was a, the initial discussions. But how did what was the reality of production like with no writing staff? You know, I don't know any different because we just discussed. I was never a staff writer, so I'm not sure. Like I've done, you know, it was like my, the movies that I do. It was like that, like the low budget features I would do or the. The MOWs I would do, there'd just be me on set, you know, and and the scripts by and large would be written already, as they were, you know. We there was very little overlap between uh, the beginning of production and, and finishing five and six, so it just seemed like the normal course of things for me because the work had already mostly been done, and it would, now was the challenge was just actually trying to get what was on the page on the screen, and as you know, that's a whole different. That's yeah. not about writing at all, that's about writing, rewriting to whatever the exigencies of the, the day happen to be. And were there a lot of, of, lot of lo um, logistics concerns? Yeah. <laughs> like Mexico somehow? Yeah. yeah, we had to shoot Texas and Mexico and Nova Scotia, which if you know Nova Scotia, it doesn't look like Mexico or Texas at all. So. Just out of, out of the ocean <laughs> part of it. Yeah, we, 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 we framed out the ocean for sure. We never saw the ocean. <laughs> So 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 um, you know production starts and uh, and then um, I wanted to know what post production was like for you because you know that's sort of the the the, the rewrite if you if you may and how how did it how did it go did it pretty much cut like you wrote it or or did you guys do a lot of work there um, I'm trying honestly it was conceived to be like a cable show for showcase so we had. Um, I was thinking about 55 minutes or 50 minutes or whatever it be per episode. But with the CBC, once you add in all the advisories and the warnings and the this and the that, it's 42 minutes and 50 seconds, which is closer to half an hour than to an hour. So the editing process was of taking all of that stuff, all those little moments that we wanted to do and taking them all out and still having the story make sense. So. You know, we, you know, we, of course, the script supervisor would give me a timing on the day and I would be cutting scenes out. But once we got into the editing room, we realized that we still needed to compress, you know, and uh, so that's what we did, you know. So it feels more like a, a thriller and less like a contemplative piece, but people seem to like, like that too. So that's, it was, that's an unintended consequence, but it worked out okay, I think. And that brings us to, to something I find interesting about it was um, the sense of pace. Um, did, was that a, was that something again that you worked with on the day, or was that deliberately in the script? That kind of, especially it, the way the pastorals. It, it was in the script. We really wanted to start with a Mennonite frame of mind, you know, the kind of this timeless attachment to the earth, a pace of life that isn't driven by technology, or you know, it's driven by the sunrise and the sunset. And then as he gets sucked into this business, that, that disappears and the pace picks up and picks up and picks up. So, so that was intentional. And, and um, how, did, how did you find the 
actors uh, react to the to the material gourd uh, <laughs> but but i mean i mean it's a, it has to be like you know this is not your typical uh, uh, script you're going to pick up i heard no complaints i don't know they seem to be embrace the challenge uh, i think uh, because it was such a different world you know actors i mean an accent, a different language, a different kind of uh, social milieu entirely. Get that shoe off somehow and be waving it. Exactly. I mean, I think that for them it was a great chance to step out of the usual and into the unusual. So. And how did you deal with the German? Um, how did uh, like how how did like the in, the, German, in the writing yeah, in the yeah, writing process yeah, and in the and, yeah. and in the production process? Well, I don't speak low German. My grandparents spoke low German. They only speak low German around me, so I wouldn't understand what they were saying. Right. <laughs> so. So we had to hire a, a dialect coach, and then we hired two people to uh, to do the translation and the transliteration for the actors. So uh, so it was a process, and it was often a hairy process because if we decided to rewrite the night before, there was the English that was rewritten, but then there'd be low German that would you know have to be learned at three in the morning or whatever. So we had people sort of on standby doing that for us. So we're very lucky to have. They're not easy to find either, you know. Yeah, and 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 like uh, so much of their word is based off of their holy book, right? You know. Yeah. Um, I expect that that's a pretty key. You know, key key centering of the of the scripts. Yeah, well, uh, the Bible when they do their religious ceremonies is largely Hochdeutsch, which is the High German, but sort of conversationally, uh, they would be Low German, which is very different. So the actors would have to actually know a bit of both. Right, yeah. right. And so um, was was there, um, was there much thought about, this is more as the writer, as producer, your thoughts about um, how are we going to sell this in other countries? And, and is this, because it's a very strange, a very oddly Canadian story with, with some Mexico it's, it components. It seems unavoidable. I thought it wouldn't be. I thought it would seem super international and un-Canadian, and yet it still feels like... Yeah, I think a it's very a, Canadian show. Well, somehow it it just bypasses this monstrosity that is between us and Mexico, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, what was there any consideration to try to make it more saleable internationally? Is that what you? Yeah, yeah, basically, I was. Well, just I always curious. thought because there's a DEA agent in it and there's a Mexican crime lord or somebody based in Mexico, I felt that that would allow an international audience a way in. But I think actually, in reality, I think it's the specificity of the characters in the world that is will be an international audience's way in and not so much our efforts to internationalize it with American characters and so forth. Right, right. Um, I just need to... I just, um, I'm not sure where we are time-wise. Um, do we need to um, be thinking about uh, um, rolling the show? Okay? Or we should roll the show. We should roll the show. So I think this is a great place to stop. We've talked lots about it. So let's take a look at Pure and then... We'll come back and uh, ch chat a bit more about some of the specifics of screenwriting. So that's uh, episode one. And uh, how did it feel uh, actually watching it on the big screen with a with an audience? It was great. I loved it. Usually I... It stops and starts, and then the CBC puts all their banner ads and commercials. <laughs> it's, it's great to see it like this. Squeeze down into a exactly corner. no credits, no nothing. Exactly, yeah. yeah. No, I looked. I, I think it's a it's a very handsome production as well as you know an intriguing story. Um, I was just going to ask before we go into the second so second half of this. Um, 
How many people here are uh, screenwriters? Wow. You, it's it's a screenwriter crowd here. That's so great, yeah. I was going to say to the people that aren't, this might be, it might get a little technical, but I didn't, but I was doing it for the screenwriters, of course, because the world revolves around us, right? Absolutely. We're <laughs> the center of the universe. Yeah. Nothing without the idea. Um, so, um, yeah. Um, uh, let me ask you um, about, I'd like to lo know a little bit more. I think people like to know a little bit more about your writing process. Are you a, um, highly um, self-motivated? Do you lock yourself in a closet? How do, how do you actually, uh, you know, find the time and discipline to do it? Uh, I have an office, which I go to every day, which costs me $172 a month. <laughs> <laughs> I've had that for a decade, so I lock myself in there every day, and uh, and I work. So, And I actually have a bulletin board where I put my bills above uh, my monitor, and uh, so yeah, it's very self-motivated. <laughs> <laughs> you look look there and go, I need to make I this. Do, much I need money. to make this much money. Absolutely. Yeah. And 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 you know how 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 do you find it because you are working by yourself all the time? Um, do you feel uh, how do you deal with the isolation, or is that an issue for you? I know sometimes I go crazy just working by myself. No, it's such a it's a, that's the hardest part. And the older I get, I thought it would get easier, but actually I hate it more and more all the time. So any way to mitigate that, uh, becoming a producer helps. You know, you go from monastic isolation to a situation like this where you actually have to talk off the top of your head. So you get kind of whiplash. But I do enjoy more and more not being locked in my room. So, yeah. In the in the future, I mean, uh, depending on we don't know where where Pure will go or or what your next project would be. Um, do you see? yourself working on these uh, sort of singular projects or would you consider working with other writers or what's your what's your any take on that michael uh, i have other projects that i'm developing right now and again it's just a matter of uh efficiency i find if i do it by myself a i don't have to pay anyone b i don't need development money i mean i spec this the pilot for this and it's like a crop you plant that you'd never know uh, if it's going to pay off in 10 years or whatever. So I just find it easier to do it myself, develop it myself. And then um, and then it, they all, they're all such a long runway. I've never had a quick turnaround for any project. So I find just for the sake of efficiency, I should do, I'll do it myself. And then uh, if I can bring in writers later on, once I get an order, then I'm, I'm happy to do that. Right. And for those collaborators that you're working with, um, that work with you. What what do you look for in 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 uh, in their writing? Um, you know the dreaded. Do you read spec scripts, Michael? Or no, I don't. I don't read spec scripts. Uh, when I was working on the Listener, we had a pile of scripts, and I I was lucky enough to meet a bunch of great writers. But I would, you know, it's true. It's like you, you go to these things and you get to know writers. I will hire people that I know. Generally, Andrew Reggett, his grandparents happened to come from this very same Mennonite diaspora from Russia as my grandparents. So we'd known that e for a long time. And Andrew Reggett is a lot like me in that he writes a lot of long-form stuff. So it was easy to call up Andrew and say, come and work with me. Um, so those were the criteria to work with him. But uh, generally, I'm not reading other people's material. I'm just focused on my own stuff. Right. And for for young writers who are, who are, who are um, trying to get their voices heard to get new new projects out there any advice in sort of you know i thought what, about what this gleaned? i thought about this you know because if i was in you know 30 years ago whatever it was and if i wanted some advice and this is not going to make your lives get you rich quick but i, I would just say that it's a 
it's a marathon, it's not a sprint. There's all of these trade publications that talk about so-and-so selling a spec script, overnight success. I don't know anybody like that. I mean, I know people like myself where it's taken years and years and setbacks and, and stuff. So I just say, get on with your life, have a life. Don't deny yourself a life just because you don't feel you're successful enough. But just understand that it's, you know, it's a long, long process. And I think maybe some people are overnight, they're really good at it. I don't think I was. I don't think even 10 years ago I was as good as I am now. So I just, I reconcile myself to it being a marathon and just, and and I think other people should see it that way too, rather than getting down on themselves for not being, you know, as successful as they hope they would be overnight. Any, any opinion on the kind of uh, spec script versus the... Uh, uh, versus the original piece. I mean, personally, I'm I'm ki kind of with you. You know, I've never really ha had any inclination to do that. And well, I there's no market here for spec scripts, period. So not for features. And I used to make I made that mistake when I started out, and I had a pile of spec scripts, and they got me a bad agent. <laughs> that, that was the beginning, and then, uh, but no, none of them ever sold. And then. Uh, but I think what it does is it shows, demonstrates to people that you can write, so it's useful to and attract an agent. But uh, yeah, I, I think you know you have to be realistic about you know uh, you should be passionate about what you do, but at the same time, don't be flogging the same script for ten years. You just have to write it and move on. Right. If have um, let's let's talk a little bit about about some of the the mechanics of of the show. Um, uh, what uh, what was sort of a script length for you? What what was the actual page count for an, for an, a TV hour there? Well, like I say, we started out thinking it would be a showcase show, and then we realized we had a CBC running time. So, and my script supervisor, you know, she would always say, "You're too long. You're too long. You're too long," because we had all these Mennonite silences all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And when people started speaking as Mennonites do, they would just generally take longer. So. We had a forty-two fifty running time, and then, but I found we had to get scripts down to like forty pages, you know, something like that. It seemed insane going into production with such so so few pages, but that turned out to be what the ideal length for this particular show. Well, the director in me loves that, you know, because yeah, absolutely, as opposed to the yeah. seventy-five. That's pages. right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I I think as much as possible, I wanted to. I, I love scripts where there's as little dialogue as possible, and with these characters, you can kind of get away with that. So, as much as possible, we would take out uh, the dialogue and just leave some, you know, just tell it visually as much as possible. Right, and and uh, in terms of actual scene count, is there? Uh, there doesn't seem to be that many scenes either. Actually, <clears throat> I wrote too many scenes all the time. <laughs> Andrew Reggett came in and took a bunch out. Uh, yeah, no, it's true. Uh, we had a very truncated schedule, and uh, I'm trying to imagine a good scene count would be about forty-five or fifty, something like that. You know, yeah. Yeah, that, that's still actually quite a quite. That's more than a, obviously more than a page, uh, a scene per page. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But did you did you like did you physically like slug in, like you know, wide shot, you know, carriage across the yes. horizon kind yes. of. Yes, I mean we did shoot some, some B roll stuff which came in handy, but generally all that stuff was in the script. Yeah. Right. You didn't just shoot a pool of generic footage to drop in. No. Yeah. No. no, we did shoot some skies, and the you know, the cameraman had a you know a mission to go out and shoot some some beautiful skies. But other other than that, there wasn't any B roll. Right. I, I mean, a lot of times you end up writing scenes because you got to you know make the production go out and shoot them, but 
this was an integrated part of your of your pacing i take it yeah yeah absolutely yeah yeah and 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 that low page count um did did you find anybody like concern at um or were you pretty much allowed on your own to to feel that the pace would be enough to engage the audience you know so often we are forced into a kind of you know hyper connected I, I thought it was pretty fast paced myself <laughs> no 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 i mean i mean I, I, I mean like looking back at it when it's in the you know like when you're actually just reading pages uh, when you're pitching it to you know your production crew and stuff like that um did they worry that you know did did you feel any pressure from the outside or was it always pretty much we like we, you know we, we no i i am i was the producer along with david so it was a unique situation that I didn't have anybody looking over my shoulder. I had the network uh, giving us lots of notes, but once, like I said, production started, the train had left the station, and uh, as the producer and the showrunner, I mean, uh, it was all about just getting our days. It wasn't about second-guessing page count or anything. So oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. Um, did... Um, uh, um, just lost my shadow here. Um, when you write... Um, are you a fast writer? Um, do you have a, 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 a? How do you try and turn out the script yourself? Technically? I think if I've got a really solid outline, I hate writing outlines because that's the hardest part. It's just like pounding cement. But if that's if that the structure is there, then yeah, I write fairly quickly because it should be easy at that point to uh, to to write it. So yeah, I find yeah. the dialogue is easy, and I find the structure is the hardest. Right. Yeah. So, because I, I was curious about how you know when you're when you're left to your own devices, if you took shortcuts, or do you do you walk through? I do the beat sheets, I do the outlines, I do the uh, I, then I draft. Yeah, them. well, we had the approval stages with the network, so I had it had to be done anyway. So, but that is my process. I will, I will go from my notebook to my index cards on the wall to my uh, outline, and then I'll once that's approved, I'll go to draft. And. Um, is there, uh, you know, did you um, did you guys do any web extension? I'm just curious if, if there's anything. No, 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 no. Okay, that's a, it's a sort of a old, f uh, you know, like it's sort of like the Mennonites themselves. Uh, you yeah, they kind of luddites. So we we re <laughs> we adopted that attitude. Yeah, I think I was trying to think. Did we have a a multi-platform approach? No, we didn't. No. Just curious because there's a, you know a lot of a lot of writers are interested in that at the end of it as well. Yeah. yeah. Um. So. So then, if if you were to sort of look back at the process, um, and then look forward, you know, um, on the landscape, is this type of show something that's um, you think is going to increase in, in um, you know, like uh, network demand? Is this uh, something? Well, that it's we just a coincidence because right now we've got this, and then we've got Mary kills people, and then there's Cardinal, and I don't think that the networks all got together and said let's let's give six-episode limited series a chance. I just think there's something in the air. So they're easier to do domestically because it costs less, and the, you know, but they're harder to sell internationally. And I know, so that's the challenge is just, you know, it's much easier to sell 13 ongoing, you know, of an ongoing series than six of a potentially just a one-off. And is that's to do with time slots in other countries kind of? Yeah, I think so. I think if they're going to buy into something, they want something ongoing as opposed to kind of... I think with the streaming services, it, that makes it a bit easier, but it, we're talking to Netflix and Hulu right now, and even for them, it's a disincentive only having six as opposed to eight or ten. Right, right. Um, the, uh, 
the uh, other part I'd love to go just to go back to a little bit because I know we talked about it a, a bit, but um, I, I I really think that the amount of research you did, uh, you know, is is quite exceptional, and 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 I just wondered in that writing in that early spec process, you know, like what did that involve beyond, you know, you actually talked to people, but were you, did you actually drop your own dime, go travel? Did you, did you, um, you know, try and see the locations, feel the place? Like, like what depth did, it, did you go to? Cause well, it I'm, feels I'm from, I'm from here. So, I mean, it wasn't a stretch to imagine Southwestern Ontario and so forth. I, you know, it's funny, the most instructive thing for me, like I would, you can sit down and talk with them, but they're taken aback by you, and and your very presence inhibits them. You know what I mean? So, but I found there are documentaries out there where they got inside the community, and people became less self-conscious, and they just started, you know, being themselves. And I found that really, really useful, particularly documentaries about the the colonies in Mexico and things like that. You know, were very useful. I'm not sure. Because I, I, I stepped out, but is this the episode where they have the brief mention of Run Springer? Yeah, know? that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, so that was interesting because I've, you know, the kind of documentaries I've seen is, you know, like they're, the, you know, they they really do a good job of going inside some of the secular parts of it. It's the it's the kind of the the more, uh, the, like I thought what le- left left me with a feeling of authenticity was the actual like seeing the service. You know, seeing yeah. them at their table. Well, the, there there are sociological studies out there which I used as well, which are note for note, beat for beat. This is what happens. This is what is said. I paraphrase some of it just for the sake of editing it down to time. But um, but there there are great sociological studies books which which deal with you know the ritual and and ritual was a big interested me not only the ritual of the Mennonites but our kind of our rituals that we have as well. You know. And did you do much work work on the on the Mexican end of it? Uh, did did you force yourself to go to? No, I, well, the, Andrew Mitrovich, who wrote the article, was also the kind of uh, segment producer for a Fifth Estate piece that was done back in the late '90s when they did go down to Mexico and they did confront the leader of the mob at that time, Abraham Harms. Hannah Gartner was the host, and. Uh, and Andrew said to me, "Well, don't go to Mexico because it's uh, it'd be too dangerous to really? to go back there." We approached. There was a gentleman who helped him as kind of a fixer in Mexico, and he subsequently the crew left. And Andrew hypothesizes that something bad happened to him as a consequence of helping them. And this gentleman subsequently moved to Ontario, and we reached out to him to be kind of a technical consultant. He wanted nothing to do with us. Well, because I, I I was concerned going into a community and leaving again and just making people potentially a target because I didn't invent the Mennonite mob. They are real, so mm-hmm. and they do bad things to people. So yeah. right, yeah. yeah. And and in the end, I think uh, um, I was curious about. Um, you know, we live in times. It's very you know that we're we're, we're concerned for for. You know, um, um, uh, well, for instance, if you want to do a, 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 a um, say a script on 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 a specific community, you know, the, the trying to trying to deliver balance, I think, becomes such an issue. Did you find that a, that a challenge uh, between sort of um, 
their needs and your needs, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. totally. I, I'm worried about it all the time. You know, if there's a season two, we'll we'll get more consultation and stuff. I don't know if there's a right answer to that. Like, do you just not do the story because there's a potential for imbalance? There's a potential for disparagement? There's, you know, I don't know the answer. I mean, like I say, I didn't invent the mob, but, you know, but I did sort of fictionalize these people. So I don't know what, I, I don't know what the correct answer to that is because if we don't allow ourselves to tell those stories, then what does that leave us with? I don't know. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. yeah. I think I think it'd be good probably to ask you guys, you know, what sort of questions you have. Um, we have one microphone, and uh, we're actually doing a uh, podcast. Uh, so uh, if the, you could um, wait for the mic to come to you, so we the listeners at home can hear it, uh, that would be terrific. So, uh, yeah. Hi there! Congratulations. Uh, very, very, really, really cool story. Really enjoyed it. Uh, I'm just curious. You mentioned before that. You started off and it was an eight-episode series, and then it went to six. Um, wondering, maybe you can tell us how that came about and and how CBC ended up with this project, and if that was a a phone call you made or was it uh, you know the traditional lines just submitting online? I, I assume not, but um, just to maybe tell us a little bit how that came about. Yeah, it was imagined as an eight-episode uh, arc, and uh, we were developing it with Shaw at the time, and Shaw said we have shelf space you know, for six, so it's going to be six. So <laughs> all of those story beats that I had for the eight episodes got squeezed into six, and then, like I say, uh, Shaw decided it wasn't for them, so we, an executive at CBC who had been developing with us just happened to be at CBC, so the very day, the the minute that I got the call from Shaw saying we're cutting it loose, and it wasn't a surprise at that point, I, my partner and I picked up the phone and called the CBC, and I'd known that this executive for years having done a bunch of stuff with her so it wasn't so it was a very comfortable kind of organic uh, submission process Do we have any other, anyone else <laughs> this is going to be a, a jogging exercise I'll just meditate for a minute here <laughs> uh, what ended up getting cut from the first episode I think a lot of the more contemplative moments got cut. A lot of the quieter stuff uh, got cut. Um, some entire scenes, but uh, yeah, like there was a scene which now seems superfluous where Bronco goes to a drug dealer who we meet in episode two, and because Bronco wants to circumvent the whole kind of um, approval process to get his drugs tested through the police department, he goes to a drug dealer who he's got to deal with for information, and this guy tests the drugs, and there's a whole thing there that never happens. He, all we see him doing is coming out of the drug dealer's house saying, I had it tested and it's cocaine. That went away. So it's stuff like that that isn't essential to the story. It's fun to establish that character, but in the end we didn't need it, so it went away. Anyone else? Feel free to jump in uh, from here on in or wave, but, um, but um, I'm kind of curious Michael now um, how you see moving forward with the show um, I, I, I've actually been lucky enough to see all the episodes um, and uh, and the ending's great um, so um, but you have plans to move forward with it and, and well, you have know, you got those blocked out? No I just was at the CBC today uh, trying to uh, convince them that it's worthwhile to do a second season so I do have in my mind a three season arc 
that sort of completes the Noah journey. But, you know, it's also when you do these things, you have to end it in such a way that if that's the last time you ever see these characters, there has to feel like some closure, which is kind of a weaselly thing to do, but that's part of the demands of doing this format. So, is, is it, It's interesting, like when I watch, think of Broadchurch or, um, uh, say, River or something like that, you know, they, they close the door pretty hard, actually, in, in, uh, in Europe. Is, uh, you know, is that something we're going to come to, you think? Or? I don't know. I don't yeah. know. That's a good yeah. question. I don't know. I mean, I think everybody, if you go to the expense and the, and the effort of actually creating one of these, you hate to walk away from it because, as you know, the hardest part is the cr getting it up and going, right? right. Creatively and from a financial point of view, it seems like shame to walk away from it after just one season. But I think part of the joy of these things is the concentration of the storytelling and the uniqueness of the world. And maybe sometimes, you know, six episodes is enough. You know, we'll see. Yeah, you know, it's 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 like I I loved Noah himself. Like I thought he was a, and I thought the performances, and I liked uh, you know, and and his relationship with his brother and his family was such an important part of it. Like the 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 whole sense of community, but at the same time, it was going like, wow, what happens next? Given some of the things that happened towards the end, good luck. Thank you. <laughs> I see there's a question here. Yes. What's your relationship with the original author of the article like now? Is is this someone you're keeping in mind for other projects? Andrew? Yeah, we Andrew's a great muckraking journalist, so he's always got lots of ideas. So uh yeah, you know, he's he's a good guy to know, absolutely. He's a wellspring of, of great stories. Um so what's next for Michael Amel? I'm going to the bar if you want to join me. <laughs> Probably, yes. No, the long term, are, are you um, are you looking to do obviously pure, but 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 what do you? Yeah, I've got I've got two new shows that I'm I'm heading down to Los Angeles next week to try to vlog those. So yeah, and they're both I I love cable stuff. I love serialized shows, and one is about this. Canadian who went to uh, London in the 1860s and revolutionized the world of uh, circus entertainment. And it's all about the inve invention of mass entertainment, a true story. And the other one's a contemporary espionage story inspired by the Russian military uh, bribed this naval officer in Halifax to spy for them for the paltry sum of $3,000 a month. Which uh, And he said, and they, they caught him and said, why did you do it? And he said, because my wife was cheating on me. So. <laughs> I just I want to do a down and dirty story about the actual world of contemporary espionage as well. Very interesting. Um, did I see another? I thought I. It's like it's light. <laughs> well, um, I think maybe we could leave it there, Michael. It's right. been an, a pleasure. I think this show is fantastic. Uh, really enjoyed it, and um, everybody, if you get a chance, you know, check out the last. Uh, you know, five uh, the five remaining episodes, of course, if you haven't seen it. What are you at now? Four? four? Uh, the last one is uh, episode six, the screen's on Monday. Yeah, yeah it's it's really watch it on demand, and it's a, it's a very good actual uh, uh, binge. Um, you know, the, the, and, uh, and the way that uh, I loved, without doing the spoilers, but I love the way you, you know, the way it, you know the inevitability of coming towards the end is is really really nice. Great, great. Yeah. Thanks. So thanks everybody for coming, and uh, glad uh, that you could come out, and hope you enjoyed it. And Thank you. Learn something. Yeah.
Thank you for listening to Writers Talking TV, presented by the Writers Guild of Canada. All of the Writers Talking TV podcasts can be found on the Writers Guild website, wgc.ca, and at iTunes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share your feedback at iTunes or email writerstalkingtv at gmail.com. That's writerstalkingtv, all one word, at gmail.com. Many thanks to the team at Tiff Bell Lightbox and to the podcast's technical producer, Philip Vukovic. Today's podcast featured Michael Amel, showrunner of Pure, broadcast on CBC Television. I'm Cal Coons. Thanks for listening. <laughs>